All right. How or wow? Are you how people or wow people? That is the question. What I mean by that is this. Whenever you're faced with um, some sort of a problem, some sort of a difficulty, some sort of one of life's many obstacles, um, whenever there's a tension that you have to face, whether that's personally, professionally, with your family, or you just look around at the problems of the world, is your first reaction, how? Like, how can we possibly do anything about that? How do I have the resources? How do I have the time? How do I have the money? How can I fix this? Like, how is it ever going to happen? It seems insurmountable. It seems impossible. Or are you naturally like a wow person? Like, wow. Like, wow. What a, like, yeah, there's some, there's some obstacles, but what an opportunity. Like, wow, there's potential here. Wow, there's possibility. And if you're a Christian or follower of Jesus, like, wow, I can't wait to see what he does. Wow, I, I don't understand how this is going to work out, but I, I mean, I, I'm confident and I believe something's going to happen. How or wow? Uh, the passage of scripture we're about to dive into today and kind of go through together brings us right into like kind of the middle of, of, that, of that tension. We're going to see that today. So we're going to be in John chapter 6. We've been journeying through the gospel of John. We're starting chapter 6 today. Um, and we're going to look at one of the probably the most famous miracles of Jesus, the most well-known uh, like within the church and just kind of broadly in culture. This is one when if you would ask somebody like name a miracle of Jesus, this is probably the one they'll think of. Uh, and it's a really, really important miracle. This is Jesus feeding of the 5,000. So Jesus in the wilderness with a crowd of people feeds them basically from uh, from nothing, just miraculously provides food. And it's, it's a super, super important miracle. We know that for a couple of reasons. Uh, number one, like this is the only miracle, other than the resurrection of Jesus, this is the only miracle that all four gospel writers include. Like all four of them are like, yep, we got to tell you about the feeding of the 5,000. That tells us uh, that, that like the early church, the earliest disciples and followers of Jesus, the apostles, those that were like, we got to write this down, we got to pass this on, we got to make sure people know about it. They were like, this one is important. We can't, we got to make sure that people have heard this one, it's kind of it's unique because Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we refer to those as the synoptic gospels. They're very, very similar. Um, a lot of times they'll include a lot of the same miracles, right? They kind of tell the same stories with slightly different details. But John comes along usually and he's like, nah, I don't want to do that. Because John's like, I don't really care about telling you what happened. I want to I go big picture. I want to tell you what it all means. I want to give you this big cosmic perspective. But in this case, well, normally Matthew, Mark, and Luke are completely different. But here they include the miracle and John's like, yeah, I need to tell you about that too. There's something about this miracle. There's significance to it. All the Gospels tell us about it. It's also the miracle that affects the largest amount of people, so uh, well over 5,000 people. Um, the text tells us 5,000 men, but scholars are like, yeah, that's probably just the count literally of the men. Women and children were probably not included in that count, so somewhere between fifteen to 25,000 people out in the wilderness gathered around Jesus. It affects the largest amount of people. It's also unique in the fact that it's a miracle that like, the, the people who experience the miracle also get to kind of participate in it in a way it's a super famous miracle well known within the church well known within culture recorded a whole bunch of times but in some ways and in some details it's not necessarily what we think it is or there's things about it that we don't necessarily see right on the surface that like this is this is something that's doing more than what we think it's doing in fact the miracle actually sets up what jesus is going to teach after the miracle that we'll get into in the next couple of weeks and so this is kind of like we're, we're going through the gospel of john but this is like part one of like a three-part mini series within the gospel of john that's all set off by this miracle so what we're going to do today is i want to dive into it i want to look at some of the details i want to pull out some of the layers of meaning because there's like layers and layers of that and i want to drill down on one really really big idea uh, for what it means for you and me as we go about living our lives today. So we're in John chapter 6. You've got a Bible, you can turn there. They're at the back of the room as well. And I'm going to have the verses up here on the screen. 
assuming that everything works as it's supposed to. So John 6, starting in verse 1, we read that after this, Jesus crossed the Sea of Galilee or Tiberias, same body of water, different names, um, and a huge crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was performing by healing the sick. And Jesus went up a mountain and sat down there with his disciples. And so John says, like, hey, after this, like, after what exactly? It's just kind of an unspecified, yeah, you know, later on in the future. It's not, it's not real exact. Uh, when he says after this, he's talking about after what just happened in chapter 5. Uh, if you've been tracking along with us, we just spent like a month going through John chapter 5. Uh, there's this account where Jesus heals a paralyzed man who's sitting at a pool. The guy's been paralyzed for 38 years. Jesus heals him. He catches a bunch of flack from the religious leaders because they're like, you did that on the Sabbath. You're not allowed to do that. And basically it comes down to Jesus saying, well, I'm God and I made the Sabbath, so I, I, I can actually do that. Um, so that's just happened. And John's like, okay, after all of that. Uh, we don't really know by John's account how much after that is until we, we read the next verse. He tells us it's the Passover. So based on what just happened in chapter 5 and what's about to happen in chapter 6, it's somewhere between six months to a year later. We'll go on the conservative side. We'll say about six months after what just happened in John chapter 5. Um, and John's like, I don't care to really tell you what happened in those six months. And that bothers us. We're like, wait, you can't just, you can't just fast forward six months. It's like the scene in a movie where something's happening and it fades to black and it fades back up and it's like six months later, right? It's like that just happened with John. And he's like, again, I, you go read Matthew, Mark, or Luke if you want to know what happened because they actually include it for us. You go to Matthew chapters 4 through 15, Mark chapters 1 through 7, Luke chapter 4 through 9. That's what happens during the six-month period. And what you'll read when you go to those passages of scripture is you'll see Jesus going from village to village to village, and he's healing people, and he's doing miracles, and he's teaching, and as he's healing people and teaching, like, the momentum starts to build around his ministry. People start to follow him. Like, rumor starts to spread, oh, yeah, Jesus is coming to town. I heard, yeah, he, he healed my brother. Yeah, he healed that blind guy. I saw that guy that was lame. I saw him get up and walk. And so this crowd starts to form, and that's where John picks things up. He's like, a huge crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was performing by healing the sick. So we got a massive crowd of people around Jesus out in the wilderness. And then John gives us this detail. Because the Passover, a Jewish festival, was near. This detail right here, the fact that it was Passover, this is like the key idea that sets up the whole rest of the text, the rest of the chapter. Like, this is the thing that becomes like, okay, this is what's important. This is what's going to inform everything else. This is the kind of the thing behind the thing that's, that's informing and filling out the details that we miss. And, and for, for most of us, uh, as kind of 21st century people, we're Americans, we're Northeastern Ohioans, whatever. We're, we're modern people. We're like Passover. And we're like, okay, um, thanks for telling us the time of year it was. That, 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 that's basically all the further that meaning goes for us, right? We're like, okay, you've, you've kind of stamped it with a date. But to the original audience, this was loaded with meaning. To Jesus himself and to the crowd that he's talking to, John who's writing this, and a lot of the people that John are talking to, when they heard Passover, they heard something very, very different. Because they were all first century Jews. And they had a first century Jewish perspective on things. And as, as first century Jews, they constantly had this, this soundtrack of the Old Testament just playing in the background. Like it was the thing, it was, it was what was always behind everything. What we would call the Old Testament, it was their scripture, it's their Bible. And so when they hear Passover, it's like, it's like the, the volume on their soundtrack gets turned up. And they're like, ooh, I know this song. I know what this is about. It, it's, like a, it's like a good score to a good movie, right? The music in a movie or a TV show can really make or break um, 
that movie, right? It, it kind of fills out the plot. It, like, it, it builds, it, it moves the plot line along. Sometimes like a movie score can be so good, you don't even notice it's there unless you take it away and you're like, something's wrong, something's not right here. And that's what's going on to these Jewish people when they hear the word Passover. It's like there's something playing in the background. And that's something that's playing in the background can actually give you context for a story. Some, there, there are some like movies that do this really well, some not so much. But whenever there'll be like a remake or a spinoff or um, like a reboot of a, of, a, of a movie or a franchise or there's a sequel to it, right? They'll pull in a little bit of the soundtrack from the original. And, and they'll either just sample it or they'll, they'll use the song entirely. And if you've seen the original, you're like, I know what this is. I know what's going to happen. I know the characters. I know the plot line. I, I know what to expect. The, the, the biggest movie of the summer actually did this very, very well this year. Who went and saw Top Gun Maverick, right? Anybody? Anybody? Only a few of you. All right, church is canceled. We're going to go watch a movie. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but like, as soon as you go and watch that movie, the first thing when the, the movie opens, you hear is, do, 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 bow, wow, wow. And you're like, oh, I know what this is. Like, this is Top Gun. Now, I'm assuming if you went to see the movie, you already knew what it was going to be. But it's like, as soon as you hear that, you're like, oh, I know, I know the movie. I know the song. I know, like, okay, I, I, I know the backstory. I know the tragedy of Goose. And you're like, oh tears, right? I know, I know Maverick. I know what kind of good character he is. I know what to expect from this movie, all because you heard, do, 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 ch, 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 right? And you're like, this is it. This is it. Like, that's what a good kind of uh, music can do. I've got, I've got one that I want us to do together here, and I'm thinking, I don't know how evenly divided this room is going to be, so we're going to discover here in a second. I'm going to play a, a clip. It's about a seven-second clip. I don't, I mean, you can watch it, but really, I want you to listen. I want you to hear what you hear and tell me, when, when we get done, see if you know what this is going to be about. Some of you may have already seen this, and that's kind of cheating, but whatever, we're going to do it anyway. Jake, go ahead and roll it. There was a time when the world was so young. Who knows what that is? Anybody? I, I see maybe one or two hands. Did, did you hear the... That right there is the trailer to Amazon's new Lord of the Rings series that comes out in September. Which, side note, I'm excited but also apprehensive about, because I'm like, oh, don't you, don't you do my boy Tolkien dirty, okay? You got to do good to that work. Like, I, 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 okay, anyway, Middle Earth, it's my jam. Um, but like that little, that little, that's from the original score to the original trilogy by Howard Shore, amazing music, and like that little bit, that's like, boom, I'm in Rivendale, okay? I'm sitting at the Council of Elrond, because like that is the music, okay? And it's just like, I'm right there. Now, for those of you that know what I'm talking about and are Lord of the Rings fans, you're like, yes, right? And the rest of you are like, when's he going to stop talking about this? <laughs> okay? And you're like, I have no clue what's actually going on right now, okay? That's the tension I want us to feel when it comes to, to the audience. Jesus' original Jewish audience, right? They're those of us that are the Lord of the Rings people. Us modern people, we're the rest of you guys that are sitting there going, I've never heard this before. I don't know what this is. See, if, if you have the song playing in, in your mind, if you know what's going, you heard that, and you're like, I know what this is. It's good and evil, and there's rings of power, and there's a dark lord, and there's, there's elves, and there's dwarves, and there's men, and like, I know, I know this story. If you didn't know what it was, you're like, I don't know, it seems like some sort of epic thing. It might be good, it might not be, right? And so whenever this Jewish audience hears Passover, they're like, ooh, we know what this is. We know what this is. There is meaning baked into this. Passover is Israel's story. 
it, it, is, it is what forms their identity. It's what tells them who they are, who God is. Like, it is like this is everything about, the, about us. It is their formative kind of identity thing where God rescued them from slavery in Egypt, brings them into the wilderness to eventually take them into the promised land. So he rescues them from their oppressors, and here's what's going to be key for this text. And after he rescues them in the desert, he provides them manna every day. It's bread that comes down from heaven. It's this flaky bread-like substance that feeds them and sustains them, and he provides for this crowd of people in the desert. And so they're there. It's Passover time. That's fresh in their minds. That's what they're there to celebrate. And so during that time, their hopes would run high. They would replay the story of the original Passover in their minds when Moses, like through Moses, God rescued his people from Egypt. And so now there was, they were looking for the, the prophet who was to come. Because during the time of Moses, God said, I'm going to raise up a prophet like you, and who's, I'm going to put my words in his mouth, and they're going to do what I, what I, I, I tell him that they, they need to do. And so they expected that prophet to come at Passover time. They're like, we're waiting, we're waiting, we're waiting. We want the prophet to come and deliver us like Moses delivered us out of Egypt. We want the prophet to come and provide for us like manna was provided when we came out of Egypt. And the nationalistic fervor is just high, and people are like, let's go, let's go, let's go. And so now the scene is then set. We have a crowd of people in the wilderness. It's Passover time. And there's about to be miraculous bread provided for them. This is Jesus once again putting, like, retelling Israel's story and putting himself right at the center of it going, guys, I am the most high God. I am the one that you've been worshiping this entire time. So now the scene is set. We've got Passover playing in our minds. Let's see the details of what happens. Uh, Jesus looked up and he noticed a huge crowd coming toward him. And he asked Philip, where will we buy bread so that these people can eat? Right? Massive crowd of people, and it's getting late, and they're hungry. And he's like, Philip, where are we going to get bread for these people? And why, the, the question that I ask right away is like, there's, there's 12 disciples. Why does he, why does he ask Philip? Right? Why does he single him out other than he has an awesome name? Okay? Like, why? <laughs> yeah. You're at, yeah. Like that? Okay. Uh, but it, that's not why, because my, my name's actually spelled differently than that anyway, because, sorry, Dad, I'm telling the story. Um, so when I was born, Philip is my dad's middle name, and... Um, my mom asked my dad for my name on the birth certificate in the hospital, are there two L's or one L in your middle name? He said two, and so two L's went on my birth certificate, later finds out that there's only one L in his middle name. So, <laughs> so yeah, yeah, this is, this is how my dad's middle name is spelled, and how the apostle Philip's name is spelled, but not how mine is spelled. Okay, so he asks Philip, not because of his name, but because we learn from details in the Gospels that Philip is actually from the area that they're in right now. This is like his kind of hometown region, and so this is Jesus going, hey, you're from here. You should know. This is, you know, when we show up in a, a town, we go visit a friend or whatever, you're like, hey, where's the best place to, you know, to grab coffee? What's the, who's got the best pizza in town? Where can I run to the store? Where can I get this? And, and they, we ask the person who's from there because it's like they're going to know. And so it's like, Philip, you know, you've got the connections. You know the locals. You know what store. You know where we can get stuff. You are the one who is best positioned and equipped. You are in a position to do something about this. I mean, we're, we're going to kind of find out as the text goes on that even though he's in the best position to do something about it, he's still completely can't do anything about it. But if anyone, any one of the disciples there could, could know where to get bread, it would be him. And so Jesus is like, hey, where can we get bread for all these people? And then John includes this detail. He says, he asked him this, Jesus asked Philip this to test him, for he himself knew what he was going to do. So Jesus asked Philip this question, he's not really like, oh man, there's a lot of people here and they're hungry and if we don't find bread, we're in trouble. No, he already knows what he's going to do. He's like, I, I, I know it's Passover, we've set this up, I want to communicate something about who I am and what I'm here to do, and it's manna, and it's the, the bread of life, we're going to get into all that. I already know what I'm going to do, I'm going to do the miracle regardless, but hey, Philip, where can we get bread? 
where can we get bread? He asked him this to test him. And it's not like a test, like a, like a gotcha. It's like a test of like, do you want to actually be a part of something? This is the, one, of the really, one of the really cool things about being a Christian or being a follower of Jesus is, is this idea that we see here in Philip. Jesus doesn't need Philip to do the miracle, but he wants him. Say, like, I don't need you to do this, but I want you to come do this with me. I want you to be a part of what I am about to do. This is one of, the, one, of the, one of the coolest things about being a Christian or a follower of Jesus. If you're a follower of Jesus, when, we, when he saves us, he doesn't just save us from something. He saves us to things as well. He saves us to a family and a community of faith, this thing called the church. And, and this, this, this family and this community of faith and the people that we are aren't just like here to gather and do a little social club experience. It's like, no, I have a mission and a purpose and something that I, I want my, my, my family to partner with me in doing. I've saved you to do stuff. The Apostle Paul picks up on this idea a couple of different places. You know, he, there, there's a time whenever uh, um, there's some argument in the church about which church leader do they follow. And Paul's like, it doesn't matter. We're just planting. We're just watering. God makes it grow. And he's like, actually, like, we are co-laborers. We're co-workers with Jesus. Like, we, we, we play for the same, t- like, us and Jesus, we're like, we got the same goal. We're playing for the same team. He wants us to do stuff with him. There, there's a, another time when he says that, that, that we, if you're in Christ, you are God's masterpiece. You're his, you're his piece of art, you're his artwork, you're his, his poetic expression that you've been recreated, you've been made new in Christ Jesus. And he says, for what purpose? He says, to do good works that God has prepared for you to do. Like there's something for us in this life. God says, come, you come on the adventure of a lifetime. I don't just want you to be like, hey, I'm a Christian, I'm good. I want you to come and, and yes, you're saved and you're in my kingdom. Now let's go and bring this hope to other people. It's this thing that that underneath of it, it gives meaning and purpose to life to get up every day and say, I'm living for something so much bigger than myself. Like Jesus has invited me to be a part of what he's doing, to live in the, when I see the challenges and I see the opportunities in front of me, to go, wow, Jesus, I can't believe who you are and what you're doing and you're inviting me into that? Let's go. Let's go. Jesus is, is, is going to do stuff, you know, whether we want to be a part of it or not, but he's like, I want you to be a part of it. So Philip, where can we get bread? I've positioned you to be able to do this. You're the guy, this is your town, Philip, let's go. And Philip answers him. 200 denarii worth of bread wouldn't be enough for each of them to have a little. Denarius is, it was like a day's wage for just like the common laborer. So it's like 200 days, like eight months basically. You could work for eight months straight and spend every penny on bread and it wouldn't be enough for, for everybody to have just a bite, just a little nibble. You, you got to be kidding me, Jesus, with this, where are we going to get bread to feed these people? And Philip's reply, is, it's like, it's, it's so typical of where we often find ourselves, Right? We, we look at the, the situation that we're in from like this strictly human perspective. We see these insurmountable odds. We see something that seems impossible. I think about only my resources and what I can bring to the table. And like, well, I know how much time I have and money I have and talent I have and whatever, how much knowledge I have. And it's just like, it's not even anywhere close. It's a hopeless situation. And this is where we find ourselves, I was talking about at the beginning, in that middle of the, is it the how or the wow? Philip comes and Jesus is like, hey, you want to come, where are we going to get bread? You want to be a part of what I'm doing? And Philip goes, how? How are we going to have enough? How's there possibly going to be enough bread here? I could, I could go and knock on every door of every person in this town that I know, and I could beg, borrow, and steal every little scrap of bread I can get, and it won't be enough. How? And Jesus is like, will you, will you just come and trust me? Will you just become an, just in awe of who I am? You know what's crazy at this point? You know, we read at the beginning, after this, it's been at least six months 
six months of Jesus healing and doing miracles and signs. And Philip is there for all of it. He's seeing all of it, right? He's seeing Jesus heal people, people walking and blind people seeing. It's like, and then he's like, okay, Philip, we're going to do this. And Philip's like, how? How? He's like, Philip, haven't you spent, you know, this, this last six months, this last year with me, haven't you seen? You've already seen the how. I'm the how. Come be a part of what I'm doing. Come be a part of what I'm doing. And that's where we find ourselves sometimes, right? Find ourselves in this place when it comes to, like, what God has for us. And, like, he's like, hey, we want to come be a part of this. And we look around at the, the problems and the chaos. And I see pain. And I see suffering. And I see people hating each other. And there's anxiety on the rise. And depression's on the rise. And suicide's on the rise. And drug addiction's on the rise. And, like, there's all these things where, where like, the light of Jesus and, like, his kingdom invading into people's lives is what will set people free from that. And he's like, come be a part of what we're doing. And I look around. And it's like, but everything's so messed up. How can, can my little contribution possibly make a difference Philip says that we, we just don't have enough then one of the disciples Andrew Simon Peter's brother so we got another one who's stepping up he's like okay well Philip has failed this test so Andrew Andrew's like okay let me let me try well here's a boy who has five barley loaves and two fish but what are they for so many so Andrew's like I'm gonna do slightly better but I'm still gonna be like no this is impossible how can we possibly do this now, like this little detail here about the, the loaves, the loaves and the fishes. Um, I've always said like five barley like loaves and thought like, I think of like a loaf of bread, right? Like just fresh bread, like steaming, like out of the oven. There is nothing quite like the smell of like bread baking in an oven. You're just like, oh. Like that's kind of what I pictured, right? Because, you know, flannel graph. I pictured like, 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 like loaves of bread and fishes, right? But it's like that's not what actually is going on here. John tells us like it's they're barley loaves. Barley was a grain that was mostly fed to animals. Barley was the grain that, that if people ate barley, it was only the lowest of society, the, the lowest socioeconomic status in society. Those only the poorest of the poor people would eat barley. It was the grain of the poor people. And, and so it's, it's, it's really like the worst of the worst. And it's not really loaves. It, uh, it would be like stone ground barley mixed together with a little bit of water, a little bit of olive oil, smashed into like a flat cracker and baked right, like flavorless, tasteless, dense, like instantly so dry that it gives you the hiccups when you eat it, you know what I mean? Like this is what we're talking these five little crackers and two fish, and not like nice big fish. There's actually different Greek words for fish, and the ones that's used here means they're these small little pickled fish, which just sounds awful, but that was for preservation, okay? It's like a sardine, you know, a can of sardines, and they, that wasn't even like the main sustenance of the meal. The bread was like what gave you the nutrition. The fish, scholars say, was just kind of a little side dish to give the bread some flavor. Okay. You know your bread is bad when you've got to have pickled fish to give it flavor. Okay? And actually, some scholars said that there was a good chance that they took, I hope you don't have an easy gag reflex, they would take the, the little fish and spread it on the bread. Okay? Spreadable fish, right? To give it flavor. Fish jelly. Okay? It's like, this is, this is the meal. They're like, here's what we have, Jesus. Like, the poorest of the poor, unnamed peasant boy's lunch that is just tasteless, flavorless. And Andrew, Andrew's like, what are they for so many? And his point is, is exactly like, the, 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 like the, how small it is. And Andrew's response to it is actually the point. The, the, this meal that they have is, it is ludicrously inadequate. It is laughable. It is comically in, inadequate for the actual need. It's like, you're better off not to even bring this because it's just embarrassing how little this is. And it's like, yeah, that's kind of the point, though. That's kind of the point. You see, whenever 
Jesus invites us in and says, hey, you're my follower. Come be a part of what I'm doing. Come bring what you have to, to be a part of what I'm doing in the world, to meet the needs that are in this world, the spiritual, the physical, the emotional, the, all the needs. Like, come bring what you have to be a part of that. And we look at what we have, and it is comically inadequate. It's like, I have nothing. He's like, that's the point. It's never about what you had anyway. It's about what I have. There's enough within me to meet the needs. This isn't about what you have. It's about what I want to do, and I want you to become be a part of that. And so Jesus kind of moves right past this kind of objection as well, and he says, hey, tell them to sit down. And there was plenty of grass in that place. So they sat down, and the men there numbered about 5,000. Jesus took the loaves, and after giving thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, and so also with the fish, as much as they wanted. Over the next verse or two, listen to John's emphasis on just the amount, the, the sheer abundance of the meal. First, he says, he gave to everyone as much as they wanted. You want seconds? You want thirds? You want fourths? Okay, it's Thanksgiving, right? Like, you just go, like, as much as they wanted. And when they were full, he told the disciples to collect the leftovers so that nothing is wasted. So they collected them, they filled 12 baskets with the pieces from the five barley loaves that were left over by those who had eaten. Over and over, John's like, they were full, they had enough, there were leftovers, there were 12 baskets full, this, this emphasis on the lavishness of the supply, that everyone has more than enough, that they are satisfied, and, and there's, not, there's not a lack, that there's enough for everyone. There, there's this, this beautiful picture of, of abundance. Later on in this passage, Jesus is going to begin teaching and kind of explain what the miracle meant. And he explains the miracle and he gets into it and he says, listen, I am the bread of life. And there's this correlation, like just like there was an abundance of the bread and there was 12 basketfuls left over and everyone was satisfied. And there was more than anyone could possibly need. And I'm the bread of life, so there is an abundance of life in me. Like, there, there's life to the fullest. There's life more abundant. Like, there's, there's the life that you desire that God has, has intended for humanity from the very beginning of time, and then sin got in and jacked it all up. He's like, there's an abundance of the life that you so richly and deeply desire, and it's found in me. There's life overflowing. And, and the thing is, like, I think of that idea, the abundance of life that's in Jesus, and it's overflowing, and there's enough for everyone to be satisfied, and, and it'll never run out. And it's like, it's like intellectually, we know that sometimes. But we don't necessarily live that or see that sometimes. Like, like if you're someone who maybe is on the outside, like looking in, you're a little skeptical, maybe you're exploring faith, or maybe you are, even are a Christian and you have this perspective, it's like easy to be like, yeah, like Christianity and the Christian faith does not seem like abundance. It doesn't seem like kind of like the best life. It kind of seems like the opposite, right? It kind of seems like I'm missing out and I have to give up things. It, it doesn't seem like Jesus is an abundance of life. It kind of seems like Christianity is the Eeyore life like don't bother i love jesus you want to go to church yeah let's go to church and it's like man like if that's our perspective on faith if that's how the way that we view the christian life and that we view jesus like we have the wrong version of christianity because like i've come to give you an abundance of life life overflowing it's not, it's not this, this kind of like uh, just depravity and, and like lack and, and like we don't have enough and oh bother and worry and all this all the time. It's like, no, 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 that, that is the opposite of the Christian life. And certainly when you become a follower of Jesus, there are things that we are called to give up and there are sacrifices that we have to make. And he does call us to, hey, pick up your cross and follow me. It's not always going to be easy. But the life that you get in return so far outweighs the things that you give up that it's not even comparable. 
It's like we, we give up some things, but we, get, we gain an abundance of the things that we really want. Because there are longings and there are desires within the human soul that every human being is like, it's, it's like, it's an itch that I'm looking to scratch. It's a thing that I'm like, I can't ever seem to get to it. There is that longing for something deeper, for something bigger. Like, there's got to be more than life to this, right? There's got to be more to just get up, go to work, come home, eat, go to sleep, get up, go to work, like, and just do that for the next 40 years until I can retire and then die. Like, there's got to be more to life than that. I want a life of joy and meaning and purpose and like there's something that I want. And Jesus is like, those are the things that I will give you when you come to me. Yeah, you may have, there may be some sacrifices in the terms of, I don't know, relationships or habits or the way that you view the world or the the, the way that you prioritize things in your life. There will be some things that you have to give up. But on the other side, there is an abundance of life that I want to give you. There's more than enough in Jesus so there's 12 basketfuls. There's layers of significance, even just to the number of, of 12. There were 12 tribes in the nation of Israel, and Jesus comes as their Messiah. This idea of like, hey, I, I am more than enough for, for Israel. I am more than, like, I, I fulfill everything that was promised, everything that was prophesied. I am the one. I have enough to provide for Israel. But then he's also got 12 disciples, the 12 guys that are the closest to him. He's like, wait, let's, let's pick up these leftovers the implication that nothing is wasting, that we're going to take this with us. We will, we will use this. We will eat this. There's 12 of them. There's 12 of you. This beautiful idea that Jesus has enough, and he is enough to supply for the needs of his disciples. He's like, I'm calling you to, like, I'm, I'm calling you some crazy stuff. I'm asking my disciples, like, I want you to follow me. I want you to give up things. You've got to walk away from some things. I'm asking you to be a part of what I'm doing, and it's not always going to be easy, but at the end of the day, I've got you. I'm enough for you, whatever you're going through. But pick up the 12 baskets, let nothing be wasted. And the people see the miracle. They, they say, this truly is the prophet who's come into the world, the prophet. This is the prophet spoken of during the days of Moses. And God said, I'm going to raise up a prophet from among their people. I'm going to put my words in his mouth. I'm going to tell, I'm going to, he, he, he's going to tell them everything that I command him. Like this is during the time of Moses when they're wandering into the wilderness, God says, I'm going to raise up this particular prophet. And they've been waiting for that prophet and waiting and waiting. And now they see this because they're like, hello, this is manna in the desert again. This is the prophet. This is the one we've been waiting for. And all of a sudden, all these light bulbs start going off in their mind. Because again, remember, they got the Old Testament, you know, soundtrack playing in their background. In in Moses' day, God delivered us and miraculously provided bread. And so God just miraculously provided bread again. Passover time, hopes are high. This kind of nationalistic fervor is high. And they're like, well, in Moses' day, not only was bread provided, but we were delivered from our oppressors. We were delivered from Egypt. So maybe this is the time. Maybe this, this, this Jesus guy is going to deliver us from the Roman oppression Maybe he'll be a, a worldly, ruling, conquering king. And that's exactly where their mind goes. Verse 15 says, Jesus realized that they were about to come and take him by force and make him king. And so he withdrew to the mountain by himself. They're like, hey, let's go. This is the guy. This is who we've been waiting for. He's fed us. We're feeling good. Now, we, we, we know what else went along with that story. Like, whoo, let my people go. That's right, Rome, let us go. Like, we want to be our own great nation again. And Jesus is our ticket to that. Let's make him king. They wanted to harness the power of God for their own purposes. 
They, they wanted to harness the power of God for their own agenda. They see a Messiah who can feed them. They, they, they see a Messiah envision deliverance from Rome in a place of kind of worldly status as Israel had once enjoyed in their history. But Jesus is saying, listen, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not here to be your puppet king. I'm not here to help you build your kingdom. I'm here to establish my kingdom, and I'm inviting you to be a part of that. And it's a kingdom that's way better than anything you can imagine. One author said it this way, that everyone was waiting for a king who would wipe out their enemies and give them wealth and a comfortable existence. They didn't expect a Messiah who would live among them and die. He dwelt among us, showed us how to live, took our place on the cross, forgave our sins, and offers us peace, understanding, and hope. And perhaps the coolest thing of all is that Jesus promises to live inside of us and work through us as we also live in him. And that is one of the coolest things of all. Like, I don't just want to leave you out. I want you to come be a part of what I'm doing. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not necessarily here to deliver you from your worldly issues and all of your worldly problems. I'm not here to give you a, a safe and comfortable life. I'm not here, I'm not interested in being a political pawn used for different agendas. I'm here to do something bigger, something better, and it's something I want you to be a part of. See, see Jesus' aim is not to free us from the, the things that we think are oppressing us. His aim is to free us from the things that really are. I, I'm here to set you free from sin and death and the grave. And there are real world implications that work out from that and systems of injustice and pain and suffering. He's like, that all comes along with it, but make no mistake, at, like the, the thing at the core, I've come to die for sin. I've come to rise from the grave to defeat the power of death once and for all. That is what I'm here to do. That's his mission. And he invites us to do that with him. Like, that's what I'm here to do. If, if you're a Christian, you've accepted that. He's like, You've experienced, you've tasted that life. Come be a part of providing that to other people. You see, he invites us to come and offer up all that we have and all that we are, as laughable as it seems sometimes. It's like, I have nothing. He's like, that's okay, I'll take it. Come offer all we have and all we are to trust him and join him on his mission. To not worry about the how all the time, to realize that, hey, he's got how covered, but just go, Wow. Jesus, you are awesome, and I want to be a part of what you're doing, and I want to see hope brought to hopeless people, and I want to see healing, and I want to see restoration, and I want to see people set free, and I want to see new life in Jesus, and I want to see relationships restored and addictions broken. We want to see all of that. Jesus, you're the one who can do it. Show me in my life how I can be a part of it. That's the great adventure that he invites us on. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you. Um, God, thank you that you have saved us, that you've redeemed us, that you sent your son Jesus, that in our pain and in our suffering, in our, in, our, in our state of, of just death. You didn't leave us alone. But you waded into our mess. You got up close and personal. Jesus, you showed us how to live. You, you died the death we should have died. You rose from the grave, defeating sin and death forever. Because of that, we're invited into your kingdom. Lord, I pray that we would walk boldly in that kingdom, boldly in the power of your spirit. I pray that you would use us in whatever area of life we have influence, whatever area of life that you have, you have positioned us in, equipped us to, to make a difference. God, that we would recognize that we have nothing on our own, but, but through the power of your spirit working in us, you can change lives. God, help us to step into that this week, whatever that may look like. I pray this in Jesus' name.